Andrew Smith, what is your favourite game? My favourite game is The Legend of Zelda A Link to the Past. seemingly pointless family history my dad's mum was originally from switzerland um and she came over and married a a farmer and blah 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 a few years later i was born and we occasionally very very occasionally i think twice when i was very young went to switzerland uh for a holiday um and my first memory of video games is still you know it's 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 the thing that it's the moment that I got caught in the magic of video games and it was uh, in a hotel uh, there was a games room um, I remember it as being this cavernous space but I was only like five so it was probably quite small um, I remember the, the, the light streaming through the windows I remember it being this this very sort of empty and quiet sort of room except for this weird beeping um, and obviously they had table tennis and pool or, or whatever um, but the thing that I really remember is this, this strange gobble sort of whacka 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 noise and for anyone who knows video games, they know that's Pac-Man. Mm. Um, and it enchanted me. Like, I, I I never played it. I didn't have any coins to put in. I was probably too young to even figure out what to do if I could. But uh, it was a coffee table version. And I, I remember sort of, that was how short I was. I was sort of leaning over it, you know, with my hands up and my, my chin on it. And uh, just watching this, the, the, the sort of the attract sequence, if you like. Mm. Um, and that's, that's the thing that, even to this day, I remember probably my memory has sort of uh, made it a bit more glamorous than it really was, you know. Um, but um, it's, that was the first time I ever saw a video game, and it's the first time I was 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 sort of caught up in in what they can do. Um, you move forward a few years, and uh, you know, people, neighbours having video game consoles that I didn't have, and playing games on them, and and uh, eventually, you know, saving up to buy my own through the years. Uh, started with the Commodore 64 and then the SNES. Um, I got the Commodore 64 when, I, uh, when, when the sort of NES was actually being sort of phased out, funnily enough, so I was quite late to the game. Um, what was your first game for the Commodore? Oh, wow, first game. Um, that's a good question. I think it was Cabal. Oh. Or that's the one that sticks in my head. And uh, New Zealand Story as well, which was a cute little platformer, but... They were kind of opposite ends. So New Zealand Story, yeah, a little kind of Nintendo-esque platformer, side-scroller thing, where you play a little Kiwi chick. Um, very adorable, great uh, great theme tune. Um, and then Cabal was basically like an unlicensed Rambo game, where it was a single screen and you'd run your guy left to right. It wouldn't scroll, but you'd have bad guys in the centre and you'd sort of shoot towards them and they'd shoot out towards you. Um, and you'd sort of dodge and roll and things like that. Hmm. Um, I remember Salamander as well, which I think was like a Konami sort of sort of sequel to Gradius or something like that uh, back in the day um, so these are all on tape decks and things mm. um, but uh, but yeah I enjoyed that a lot and um, it turns out my parents had bought like a second hand one with a ton of, like hundreds of games in some deal and uh, sort of basically uh, rationed them out over Christmases and holidays and things like that um, and then eventually I saved up got my SNES with Donkey Kong Country um, blew my mind um, and then again, you kind of skip forward a little bit to to when I bought a PC for the first time, and Half Life uh, was the game that uh, I got a PC for essentially. Oh. Yeah. Um, again, 
sort of seminal moment. I mean, previous to that, N64 and Console Boy all the way. Like, oh. uh, GoldenEye, Mario 64, absolutely incredible. But Half-Life's the one that told a story that involved me in a world, you know, in a way that I hadn't been before. And oh. because of the mod tools, um, uh, actually sort of relating to your original question, they're kind of the start of me making video games. Oh. Um it was originally things like levels and, and, and me and a friend of mine who's actually in the industry, a guy called Steve Hatchard, uh, shout out to him if he listens, uh, is uh, we, we used to go to school together. Um, we would uh, go around each other's houses and we'd spend evenings or weekends basically making a level to be played by the other person in single player using the, the editor in Half-Life. Oh. And we'd sort of, it's almost past the pad, but past the editor, you know. Um, <laughs> That's an interesting way of looking at it. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's funny the things you get fun out of. But yeah, what, like we'd have like the other person while the, while one of us was making it, the other person would be playing like GoldenEye or something on the N sixty four or or watching some terrible Bruce Lee movie or whatever. Um, but um, yeah, it was, it was it was good times, and I moved on from there to sort of um, making my own levels to making levels for mods and um, making weapon models in three D programs, things like that. And that's what really sort of caught my imagination, you know, on the on the on terms of i could do this for a job like this is when i began to found out that you know people get paid to make games and i'm making games kind of but in my bedroom and and hmm. hey maybe the two can be linked up so hmm. yeah which segues and in nicely into how you got into the industry so i went to uh Abitay university up in dundee did a computer arts course um, the summer before I started that, I was lucky enough to get uh, a sort of a friend of a friend's friend's secretary was married to someone who was in QA at, uh, um, oh God, I'm going to forget, Hasbro oh. Interactive. Oh. This was when they had the Atari license. Um, oh, yeah. And uh, they doing things like uh, Pong on the PlayStation 1 and um, uh, the next Tetris, I think, was another one. Um and yeah, I got like a summer's, like, well, oh, sorry, a week's uh, summer placement sort of thing um, uh, working there. And then the guy who uh, who was our contact, he lived nearby. I used to carpool with him. He moved to Acclaim. So during uh, the first summer at uni, when I was back at home, um, I, I got to uh, do QA for Acclaim in Cheltenham. So we were working on things like uh, Extreme G3 on the PS2. Um, did a tiny bit of work on some of the uh, Sega ports that they did from the Dreamcast. So uh, a, a tiny, tiny bit of work on Crazy Taxi. Uh, don't think I was ever credited, but there you go. Um, no, no, and, no, no burnout. Not no, uh, no, no burnout. Sadly, no, that Aww. was a shame. I know, I know. Um, I think they were working on that afterwards. But, uh, ah, okay. Um, but yeah, so uh, oh, and a bit of Shadow Man Two, I think it was as well at one point. But anyway, oh. that sort of gives you an idea of roughly sort of brilliant was. And from there, I finished my degree and sort of stayed in touch. And I think that the, my degree combined with um, my history in modding, which I carried on through uni, me and a few uh, flatmates and course mates, we sort of made a little mod for Half Life again, uh, a deathmatch mod called uh, Mini Mod, which was we described it as micro machines for deathmatch. So you're all toys running around in you know a giant kitchen or a giant garage or whatever. Um, and most of us are actually in the industry now, which is quite funny. Um, and uh, yeah, so those things combined, and with my little bit of QA experience, I got a level design job. A, sorry, a junior, I should say, level design job at um, Visual Science up in uh, up in Dundee. Uh, they used to do a lot of work with EA before they went under. Um, I was there for about two years before they the, the sad day came. But uh, worked on 
primarily, unfortunately, an unshipped uh, racing game that was um, many things, but at the time that we it all stopped was the Hot Import Knights licensed sort of um, competitor to um, Need for Speed, which is obviously on the PS2, was uh, experiencing a bit of a resurgence. After Visual went under, um, I went and did a stint at Real Time Worlds and then at uh, proper games so i did do three three and a half months on um apb um which everyone i think most people have heard of no nope, um, I've, I've never heard of such a game in all my life no <laughs> <laughs> um famous for many reasons i think isn't it um, oh yes yes, yes. um unfortunately yeah, that was a huge company you know they worked very very much in a way that was you know sort of uh, i'm 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 very much exaggerating for sort of ease of you know, understanding, but like cog in a machine kind of mm. stuff. You know, oh, yeah. they, they had, and that did not suit me. Uh, so I kind of basically, well, I left. I was offered a job at Proper Games, who were founded out of the ashes of Visual Science, a bunch of my sort of colleagues and friends, and we worked on a bunch of games uh, for Capcom during my time there. So we did uh, Flock on XBLA and PSN and PC. Yeah, I remember that. Um, yeah, abducting sheep and cows and and things like that. All I remember from that game, I think, was. A- or maybe I'm thinking of Age of Booty, uh, Giant Bomb video with oh, Jeff Kirkman yes. and Adam Boyce from Sony. Yes. Or maybe I'm thinking of Age of Booty. I don't know. It might have been Age of Booty because that was roughly at the same time. Ah, but, okay. but Adam was, uh, yeah, now he's like big wig at Sony, isn't he? Yeah. But, but, but he was then at he Capcom was, uh, at the time, yeah. Yeah, he was producer there, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah good times. We had some fun with those guys. Um, so we did Flock. And I was designer on that. Um, obviously, I was still fairly sort of inexperienced in the industry at that time. I only had sort of three years under my belt. But uh, I was it was a small company. There were I think there was 12 of us working on Flock at that time. So I was like the designer by default. I had a creative and design lead above me, you know, who's one of the senior guys. But uh, I was sort of stuck there making all the levels myself, which was uh, good fun. Although one of the artists very kindly jumped in and helped on some of the co-op stuff. So that was good. Um, yeah, and uh, I actually pitched that game to Adam Boys, funnily enough, at, uh, at Leipzig uh, GDCE or, or whatever it's called these days, um, before it moved to Cologne. Yeah, so um, uh, Games Convention around that time. Yeah. That was it, yeah, Gamescom. That was it, yeah. No, and it was because in... uh, Leipzig was Games Convention, and like, ah. after, after they moved to Cologne, it was Gamescom. I see, there you go. That's why I always get confused. <laughs> um, that and all the drinking, I imagine. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, so so that's like me and Adam go go quite a way back in, in terms of that. So I remember sort of the moment that um, I sort of met him for the first time not knowing who the hell he was. We were literally in the business area and we were sort of just pitching these games. We had three prototypes. We had like a space shooter, an on-rails shooter and uh, and flock. Um, and uh, yeah, we sort of pitched all three and and uh, uh, managed to to secure it with Capcom. And then, like a year and a half later, we shipped it. And then we worked with them on the Final Fight Double Impact release on XBLA as well and PSN. So that had Final Fight and uh, Magic Sword um, in a sort of double pack. Um, CPS One, I think arcade titles that we basically wrote the emulator for and um came up with uh, all the sort of the nice ways that we treated it so sort of um uh, there was like a, it rendered if you wanted it to on a on a sort of an, a modeled arcade cabinet so it had that sort of crt curve to it um and you could switch all the scan lines on and off and the, and all this kind of stuff so um we're all massive fans of capcom and, and particularly final fight so it was a real honor to work on that um, but after that, I kind of hit that point again where I was just like, I don't want to work for other people. Um, combined with the fact that I was spent, you know, nine years of my life in Dundee, and I was like, there's more 
to life um, than Dundee. Uh, particularly, I wanted to move to London, and uh, I come from Essex, not far from London, and I decided I'd move home and start a business um, so that I basically ticked off the two things <laughs> that were bugging me about my life at the time. <laughs> and so I started uh, Spilt Milk Studios, and uh, yeah, that's, that was four and a bit years ago. I guess it's nearly five in March. That's kind of terrifying. Wow. Uh, yeah, or is it four? I can never remember. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, It's been good, though. I mean, a mix of original stuff, work for hire, and um, sort of uh, contract work for, for other companies. Talk about uh, the stuff that uh, Spilt Milk has made in the past couple of years, pre-Tango. So pre-Tango, uh, the first thing we did was uh, we looked at mobile because it was you know supposedly really easy to make games for, and I wanted to... Re- make a, more than a game every year you know uh, which was sort of the norm and uh, we we uh, my accountancy firm funnily enough the ones that i signed up with called crunch uh, they they wanted a game so i made them a game and uh, that was the first thing it was kind of like a maths based sort of block clearing puzzler uh, which is you know it's free on iphone or whatever um then i worked with a guy called nickel hunt and we co-created a sort of an update a modern update of snake called hard lines which uh, i think went down very well um and then I started a couple more projects um, that sort of got to various degrees of, of completion and, and have all been sort of, for various reasons, put on hold. Uh, the, the most recent one was actually about a, a week from release before um, we signed Tango Fiesta. Um, now, up to that point, I'd been working, you know, on sort of some people would be like a rev share, some people would be paid out of my savings. You know, it was all very much sort of spare timey kind of stuff. But as soon as we, hired, we we signed Tango Fiesta, it was like, well, hang on, there's four of us being paid to do this as a full-time job. We should really stop doing all the freebie stuff. So um, we, I, I think I started three games in the intervening sort of two and a half years, and none of them came out, which is uh, a point of uh, some sort of annoyance for myself, uh, you know, just professional pride. Um, uh, but, you know, in that time, I was doing a lot of contracting work and, and, and things like that. You know, you've got to run a business, you've got to keep it alive however you can. Um, but as soon as Tango came along, we were just like, yeah, this is fantastic. Um, and I mean, we, we, we did some jam stuff. So my, I say we, uh, I'm the only sort of technical employee still, but I work a lot with a guy called Andrew Roper, um, who's a wonderful coder. Um, and we, we did a lot of stuff for, as a, a, a festival of, of games in Nottingham called Game City, which is absolutely fantastic. And we've, we've done a little bit of work for them. And we did, we did a, a virtual uh, Oculus Rift co-op game called tomb where you were stuck in a labyrinth and had to get out and uh, we also did a, a game about hugging called huggatron obviously um <laughs> which was for um a bit of all right which is a very indie little games festival in, in here in london but uh, both of which you know they might might amount to something huggatron is probably a week a genuinely a week's work away from being finished so i think we'll we'll probably do that at some point this year but who knows Let's get into um, your favourite game, The Legend of Zelda, A Link mm. to the Past. Um, so, you'd mentioned before and you like you had your, your NES and your SNES as a kid, but like, yeah. how did you get into the series before? And was A Link to the Past your first uh, foray into the series? So, um, personally, as a player, yes. As a spectator, no. Um, I mentioned uh, some neighbour. Uh, one of my neighbours back back then had a NES and and um, got quite a lot of the early games, especially the Nintendo ones for it. And I remember sort of watching him play 
uh, Zelda 1 and 2, I believe he had um, uh, throughout the life of that. And I mean, I never, it wasn't like I wasn't allowed to play. <laughs> um, but I just, I rather, I, I just rather not at that time. Um, uh, I was happy to just watch this adventure. And it was also, in, they're both incredibly hard. Um, I don't know if you've played them recently, but they're both very, I've, very I've, good. I've, I've never played them at all. Like, oh. To be fair, like I'm an early 90s kid, like my mm. first console was not a Nintendo system. Or, well, it kind of was with a Game Boy, but my first home system was a PlayStation. Yeah, so. the big one was a PlayStation. Yeah. Oh, I see, yeah. See, even in that intervening time, games just got a lot more sort of, I don't know about forgiving, just a bit more friendly on, on sort of, you know, the first Zelda just didn't really tell you anything, and the translation in the West was terrible, and, and you know, it's quite famous for being very, very difficult, very, very different to how Zelda is these days. Um you know, some people would say they're a bit over-tutorialized and over-handheld these days. But, uh, um, yeah, so one and two I'd, I'd seen being played and I was aware of. And I think, you know, the cartoon was on telly at the time. Um, I have memories of that. Um, or maybe just VHS tapes or whatever. That's how, that's how far back we're going. <laughs> oh, my God. I just feel proper retro. Yeah, proper retro. Um, and so, there's, so Legend of Zelda, I didn't buy for my SNES uh, until... After the N64 came out, um, I, I think actually the first time I bought it to play and well to own was at university. Uh, so we're talking really after the Dreamcast was out um, and the GameCube was sort of on the horizon. Um, the reason being, um, obviously, I, I I came to the SNES late. So Legend of Zelda: Link to the Past was released in '92 in mm, Europe, yeah, and I got my SNES. Um, when Donkey Kong Country was released. Mm. So we're talking 94. Yeah. So it's two years late. Yeah. And by that time, you know, there were tons of games out. And, you know, I was, I was like, right, what am I getting? So Donkey Kong Country was there. And uh, Secret of Mana was, was another, like, it was more recent than, than uh, Zelda. Um, and, you know, so along with Super Mario World, Legend of Zelda Link to the Past, I didn't own for the longest, longest time. Um, but I knew how good it was supposed to be. I'd seen all the, the reviews and the screenshots in the magazines. and I mean, the, this was in a time when, yeah, there they quite literally wasn't an internet, which is just this most strange thing um, to say. Um, and so, yeah, we would we just obsess over, over these screenshots. Every month you'd buy a magazine and you would have however many pages devoted to the one game that you really, really cared about. And that was all you had to look at for the month and talk with about your, you know, talk about with your friends. And it, it grew this sort of obsession, you know, like what else was it going to do? Um, yeah, it's really peculiar. Yeah, I can only imagine, especially now where we have these kind of, inf- this kind of information so easily accessible. Yeah. Yeah, like, nowadays I have to make an effort not to spoil things because <laughs> if I want to, I can just see everything about a game, you know. Yeah, because like um, I, I can just walk up to you and say, "Ares died in Final Fantasy." It's just easy like that. <laughs> and you know what? I didn't even care. <laughs> <laughs> uh, That's great. Um, like, how 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 did you find um, a link to the past in terms of gameplay? Because like you mentioned yourself, like it was very difficult uh, to play. Mm. It was. Um, I think that it's the it's one of the the first times. So so Nintendo and their home consoles. They you know they had the NES before this. That was their first sort of real home console, and uh, it was the first sort of machine other than outside of the arcades that their in-house teams had really been like let loose on. Um, and you see a progression in like Zelda One is just like the first adventure game that almost you know it was very 
there were very few at all in the games industry, let alone, you know, uh, from Nintendo. And two was an interesting sort of um, twist on it, in a way, you know, the side-scrolling bits. And three was, uh, along with Super Mario World, where you sort of see that sort of evolution along the Mario sort of gameplay lines. Um, uh, you know, the third Zelda was, was just this massive jump um, in terms of, like, the richness of the world, the amount of information they gave you, the amount of mechanics they presented to you, but it was also the... F- it's sort of a, a perfect distillation of how to introduce them to a player in a way that they, you know, you're not just throwing text boxes at them of how to use things, um, but you are letting them experiment and learn through, through play. Um, and that is actually something that Nintendo have become sort of criticized for. You know, I think that this, this Zelda laid down the template that all subsequent Zeldas have, have uh, imitated um it's one that super metroid also shares uh, funnily enough um you know you get to an area you you battle through it um at a slight disadvantage then you find an item that makes what you just did a lot easier and then you explore the various ways uh, you're essentially forced to you know there are sort of gates that kind of come down that that uh, metaphorically sort of block you from progressing until you master one of the nuances of a, of a new item or a new weapon or whatever and then as you progress further and further and have more of them under your belt you know they combine them in interesting ways and start making you think outside of the box and some things are secrets that maybe you miss you know because you don't think that oh i you know uh, I should blow up that wall or, you know, that particular bunch of um, flowers is arranged in a slightly more, you know, geometric pattern than, than the normal sort of random stuff. And and I think it's just um, exemplary and, and, and hardly ever been bettered. It's, it's a perfect pitch of, like, the game is hard. Like, you will die quite easily if you're not careful. Um, but every enemy has their own little behavior that you can exploit and learn and every weapon has its use and... Um, everything is there for you to become a master of it, but uh, it's entirely on the player, you know. Like, how, how did you find that at the same time the puzzles? Because like that's another core principle of the series that's well known for being notoriously difficult. Yes. Um, see, this is the thing. I'm not exactly a puzzle guy. Let's say. Oh, I'm It's funny either. because I, you know, the first game flock that I was actually had any <laughs> real input on was a puzzle game, and it's also <laughs> ridiculously hard. Um, I find it very difficult. Um, and Zelda, I so Zelda three. I was watching. I was sort of refreshing my memory of a couple of the the um, dungeons and things. And and this was a game that I mean, it was very early in the SNES's life, wasn't it? It was sort of the second year it was out or something. Yeah, more or less. Um, and I mean, so uh, this game started on on the NES as well. Like it was actually it was actually sort of brought up to the SNES because they were they were you know so excited by the the power. Um, but it. Gamers in general, or games rather, had not been terribly complex up to that point. You know, they were exciting and they were, you know, fun and absorbing. And and maybe on PC it was a slightly different story. But, I mean, we're still so early in in sort of video games and inverted commas that the fact that Zelda 3 introduced multi-layered dungeons, you know, so you have floors that you progress down on some of the dungeons. You just go, right, you get to the bottom. Each each floor is like a set of puzzles interconnected and eventually you get down to the next floor and then the bottom there's a boss. And obviously then they start mixing it up so you sort of have to go down a bit to trigger something to go back up a bit. And then later on in the game there are ones where you literally have to drop through the floor to the room below you which you have to basically have memorized or maybe you haven't seen yet so you have to sort of take a leap of faith and the idea of uh of demanding of a player that they visualize in 3d essentially using a 2d game uh, but of a, a visualize a 3d space that is a puzzle that interlocks that's something that not only hadn't really been done that much up until that point 
like they did it so well you know i mean it's still got its sort of rough edges sometimes it's a bit brutal or, or you know you kind of think how on earth was i supposed to figure that out you know um but there are usually enough hints and and they clearly play tested it a lot um but but for them to just kind of come out the gate with that stuff you know just go bam here's a like a new template for an adventure game um here's like a great way to uh, to to sort of uh help the player progress through it and feel like they're mastering it and and these 3d dungeons but into using 2d planes was was quite amazing um not to mention the light and dark world you know they literally have like it's not even just a palette swap i mean a lot of it is like um architecturally a palette swap but you 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 transfer between these two versions of the overworld and some of the dungeons as well uh, almost um and uh you're sort of you know emptying water from lakes and and draining places and uh, it's just you know you're you're thinking on so many levels at once that the puzzles were uh, whilst brutal they were incredibly satisfying to to uh, to complete. Talk let's let's mention that how a length of the past was a kind of massive change from the first two games in terms of mm. camera perspective. Like I'm, I'm like for, normally this isn't normally a, nor, uh, an important point for most games, but like for Zelda at least in the early days, and it was it was it was a big talking point or well, a big major changing point because like the first two were kind of side scrolling whereas this one was overhead well yeah the well the first one had was sort of a very rudimentary overhead um but it, ah. it sort of it didn't matter that you know whether it was side scrolling or not it was actually the second one that introduced a like um explicitly side scrolling bits ah. um but yeah like the two are so very very close together um it's easily confused um but yeah, and and it's interesting that they dropped it. Um, and um, I mean, it's odd because you'd think. So obviously, I, I would think as as someone who has made games and understands a little bit about you know why features get cut. Um, you know, even at Nintendo, they don't have infinite time and money. Yeah. Um, and so to create a side-scrolling element, you know, you would not necessarily need a lot of new character art because the characters are sort of side-on anyway. But, you know, the environment art and things like that and behaviours and, you know, gameplay would change on, on a side-scrolling thing. So when you're going from Zelda 1 to 2 on the same machine, essentially the same graphics, essentially the same engine, you know, that's a fairly cheap, like, risk to take. You know, it's something that... Well, you're kind of just making the game again for the sequel, but you're adding one new new sort of significant thing, which was the side-scrolling. In the transition to three, new hardware, um, expansive game world, and they were like, do you know what? I can imagine them just going, let's not even approach the side-on bit. You know, like, let's... That is another big risk over and above just having to make all of this, um, you know, to the power of the SNES to sort of do justice. Um, and then they didn't make another 2D one. They they sort of did on uh, on the well, they did on the Game Boy, but it's obviously it's not a continuation on the hardware. Oh. And there was a Satella View um, sort of side story slash sequel, uh, which was only in Japan. But the next actual true Zelda entry was was on the N64. So at which point they didn't need to make it, uh, you know. A, a, a distinction between overhead and side on, you know the the, the full, idea of yeah, adventuring. And, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so the camera could go wherever they want, and and you know from an experience point of view, if you want to make a side scrolling bit and a top down game, I imagine it's because top down is sort of exploration and side on is sort of combat. You know, um, that's sort of the split. Um, you know, it's a bit more sort of action. You kind of a bit more zoomed in or whatever. Yeah, and in three D, you don't need to do that. It's all seamless. Um, so. We never saw maybe what you could imagine, you know, a Zelda 4 on the SNES might have been if they did have introduced like these side on sections again or 
or whether all of this um you know speculation is actually just rubbish and they just thought it was crap side on so they didn't bother <laughs> you know you just you, we'll never know um no i guess not um you you touched upon it um just a couple of months ago but um a link to the past also introduced a kind of series staple um mm. the parallel worlds yes um how how did you uh feel that i mean the, so from from you know when you're playing through it the um it's kind of an odd one. The the whole you can kind of see the extent of the whole map as soon as you've basically started the game up. Oh. Uh, there's no there's nothing to sort of block you off. You can almost explore all of the overworld, but none of the dungeons and the sort of uh, bits and bobs that are sort of you know um, blocked off uh, by by item requirements. Um, so you have an idea of how big this game's going to be, um, and you're playing through it. And the structure is essentially there are three. Um, three bosses to kill, three dungeons for each uh, a dungeon for each of them. Sorry, and you get a, a pendant, and then the idea is when you've got all these three pendants, you power up your sword enough, like it imbues it. Uh, you've, you, you, uh, uh, I think you have to go and find the the sword at that point as well, and then you fight the sort of in inverted commas the big bad, the the the, the boss of the game, and it's it's not an it's not a small amount of gameplay. You know, if you're doing everything, you could spend a good sort of four or five hours um, uh, through through to that point. And then you beat him, and you're like, yeah, well, obviously, you know, you're kind of expecting it to be over. But then you, there is a sort of nagging feeling of, well, there's a lot of map I haven't seen. You know, there's a lot of things that seem interesting that I haven't explored. And, uh, and of course, the game goes, ha-ha, um, that wasn't actually the end. And there are seven more dungeons um, and uh, a light, uh, sorry, a dark version of this white world that you've, you've been uh, uh, inhabiting. And it just blows your mind. You know, you're just not expecting it. Um, it's it's an absolutely incredible moment, um, and so you know you just think, what on earth? Your mind can't grasp how much more adventuring there is to do. You know, it just it seems infinite, and uh, it, the game essentially lets you to swap uh, lets you swap between the two at, at, at whim. Um, there are certain points at which you can do it. Also, there's a there's an item that lets you do it a bit more often, um, and I mean from a from a sort of design point of view it's just a really clever um way of expanding the game so it's it's essentially makes the whole overworld map um another dungeon you know one that you have to kind of manipulate on two uh two sort of realities and they sort of interact um and nothing in that is particularly i would say challenging once you've figured it out it's just the figure it's, it's more the realization of what you have to do rather than the doing of it that's uh, that's the challenge um but it just uh in a game that's all about you know high adventure and just sort of a, a young boy going off to sort of you know do what he can to save the world um it's just this absolutely incredible thing and and stylistically it's a very strange place the dark world very weird indeed mm. Link to the Past is also a first for the series in terms of establishing a backstory uh for Ganon mm. Uh, what, what what did you think of Ganon, or who we, we would know become to know as Ganondorf later mm. on the line? Well, he's yeah, it's funny, isn't it? Yeah, this is the first time they say that he's like the king of the thieves, uh, not the prince of thieves. That's Kevin Costner. Um, <laughs> he's the king of thieves, <laughs> um, and yeah, I mean, he's presented as a big sort of pig demon uh, when you finally see him. He's actually got like his alter ego is who you fight initially. He's uh, a priest or a, or a wizard called Aganim. Um, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but hey-ho. Um, and yeah, he's this terrifying force. Um, you actually only fight him 
um, properly right at the end, as it, as they they have done in subsequent games. There's sort of a, a final boss fight, and then a final final boss fight um, where where it's even harder. But yeah, he's um, he's an interesting one. They they in the Japanese original, it was actually it wasn't called a link to the past. It was called I'm probably going to get this wrong. Um, it was called the Triforce of the Gods. Yeah, and there were a lot more religious references. Um, obviously that was changed the title um, he was named a priest in the Japanese version and he's a wizard in, in ours and, and there's a one of the first things you do is take a, take Princess Zelda to the uh, sanctuary which was definitely modelled on a like a Christian church um, it's got like stained glass windows things like that but um, apparently apparently some of the text of the characters in that area has changed as well but um, this idea that yeah, there's there's this whole backstory of, of um, an evil. This this um, I'm not sure it was Ganon, but there was an evil that they had to lock away behind uh, the seals. Uh, these sages, uh, magicians, sort of helped help the kingdom, and then um, unfortunately Ganon uh, broke the seal and used the Triforce for his own good, and, and it essentially grants you a wish for anyone who doesn't know. And so, if you're a bad person, obviously bad things happen. Uh, if you're a good person, like Link, uh, good things happen. But yeah, it was you. You never really interact with him as a as a protagonist and an antagonist. You know, there's never really any sort of uh, clash in character or, or motivation beyond he's the bad guy. He's doing he's doing bad things. You got to stop him. But um, he certainly, um, along with the Dark World version of of um, Hyrule, he's very he's very creepy. Like he is a proper monster. You know. Oh, yeah. um, and that's interesting. Nintendo's usually quite oh, it's all it's all happy, but the Dark World instead of stones on the floor, it's got skulls, and there are sort of mutated versions of all the characters, and you know people who are happy and talking in Kakarika Village in in the Light World, they they're like mute um, or you know sad or destitute. Um, their houses are all ruined. It's it's you know um, it, I think it was followed on with Ocarina of Time very well. You know the sort of the dark future in that. Um, it's pretty pretty brutal, you know. Zombies were roaming the streets, curses. Um, people turned into spiders. It's all a bit grim. Oh, yeah. Don't 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 talk to, don't talk to me about spiders. Oh. <laughs> oh. Like, um, we'll touch upon other Zelda games in a bit, and like after that, there's surely a space in there for Majora's Mask, which is mm. like you know cool. seemingly creepy enough as it is. But um, so. Um, what what else did you like about Link to the Past? I think the main thing I I, I sort of touched on it earlier is the sense of adventure, um, and it can sort of be described like it's summarised by the opening sort of scene. Um, this this machine, as I said, it's a sixteen bit machine. It's very limited. Um, it was originally game as a game designed for the eight bit NES. Um, this was the first machine to sorry the first uh, game I think on the SNES to use one of the slightly bigger cartridges. And uh, when we say bigger, I think we mean a megabyte of memory rather than five hundred and twelve k or some. It's like it's on that order of tiny. Um, so with that in mind <laughs> they the opening of the game you're you're in bed your uncle's um in the room and you're you're asleep and you can hear someone talking to you sort of saying oh they're in trouble and the the evil wizards uh plotting against the the world and you you've got to you know do what you can to help it's basically kind of a nightmare outside there's there's rain pouring down 
um, and your uncle gets up and says, wait here, I'm, I'm just going to take care of some business, essentially. And he picks up his sword and his shield and walks out. And then control is handed over to you. Um, there's not a lot you can do except exit the door. And it's torrential rain outside and it's cold and it's windy. And uh, you follow the path around and there's kind of, your, your house is on the edge of some woods and, and you don't have to go far to sort of, uh, to find the, the castle moat. Uh, there are guards about and uh, you sort of avoid them and you, you come across a path that leads you to a secret entrance to the castle. Um, and I mean, all of that, you look at a video of it now and you're like, well, it's actually pretty, pretty simple. You know, there's like some repeating rain sprites and there's like a nice atmospheric track, even though it is chip tune, you know, tastic. Um, it's all very rudimentary, but the, I don't know. It's something about that really spoke to me as a, as a, as a kid. And even now, like I describe it and I get the, the hairs on the back of my neck tingle because, and this is the thing about all Zeldas um, and all the games that I, uh, you know, well, a lot of the games that I really love. It's just that that sense of like adventure and danger around the corner, but like that tingle of excitement of, of exploring. And, you know, um, I, I think if I'm completely honest, it just, it's because I grew up in the country. Um, I used to, genuinely run around with my friends build forts in ditches by forts i mean you know stuck a few twigs in the ground and called it a fort mm. um you know we were very lucky to live um in in quite a rural area in a tiny village so we kind of had the run of the the fields and this was a sort of this was this was a realization of what was going on in my head all those times we would run around chasing each other um but but in a way that you know i could never have imagined um and and it sort of it just it just makes me want to play it every time I think about that opening scene or see it on a video or or play it. I'm like, right, that's that's me. I'm in for the whole the whole adventure, you know. Um, and it's just it is just magical. That is it's something that I've often been quoted as saying about video games. Like, why do we make them? It's they're literally magic, you know. Um, they're they're ones and zeros, and they're there's code and art and design and intent, but it's essentially a magical thing. We are. We are sort of presenting a, a, a fiction and a lie and, a, and, a, and an illusion to people, but we're asking them to buy into it. And that is, when they do, just the most magical thing in the world. Um, and this is a distillation of that. And I think that is why a lot of people love Zelda so much and why they keep going back to it, you know, because they always, it gets a lot of flack for it not changing the template too much, but that template is a, is a classic thing, you know. Um, I think it's up there with, the, the the fabled sort of seven story types you know there's yeah. the the seven story archetypes it's like you don't change an archetype you don't change zelda too much otherwise it's not zelda anymore you know and then you don't want to play it you might want to play it for another reason but it's not you know it's not the thing that you want um but uh i don't know nintendo might change it all and, and prove me wrong um yeah don't don't yeah. don't fax what is broken yeah exactly it's 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 brilliant and they nailed it the first time and they've just iterated and made small improvements and and that's cool uh i don't want them to sort of mess with it too much you know mm. um so what about the things you didn't like about a length of the, pa- length of the past the, the biggest thing for me i think is related to what we were talking about right kind of near the start you know this this it's actually a difficult game mm. and they did a good job of making it sort of uh, manageable and introducing skills and, and elements of gameplay and things like that. But good lord, if you stop playing that game for a couple of days and you come back, you've got no idea what you're doing. <laughs> um, I th- um, there's there's a peculiarly sort of um, what's the word I'm looking for? Sort of uh, un unsubtle and unrefined element of the game 
which when you get to the point beyond your first fight with the bad guy and you've you've uncovered the the dark world um you've got seven as i mentioned you've got seven uh dungeons to beat and bosses to fight and you go to you look on the the overworld map and they're literally labeled one to seven where they are accessed uh, on the map um you haven't got to find them you haven't got to go over to that area and then like you know bring that that dungeon entrance onto the screen for it to appear. It's just literally one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Little, little flashing black on white number on a on a white circle. That's it. And I'm I just I don't know. Part of me just thinks that that was perhaps a late addition. You know, um, the first two Zelda's were much less about hand holding. They were much more. Um, you know, here is a world. You will figure it out. You will have a piece of paper next to you to map it out, and you know, you you it's going to be tough. Um, this was a step towards. You know, Nintendo always say, like all of their employees are always saying, we just we never made games for hardcore or otherwise or casual or whatever. Oh. We just want to make games that as many people as possible can enjoy. And I think this was a step towards you know making it a bit more friendly. But there's still that element of you go away and you come back and you're like, what the hell am I supposed to do? There's seven sages to rescue. What? What? You know, <laughs> there's there's it just seems a bit strange. So, yeah, the idea, you can get lost very, very, very easily, um, essentially, in, in what you're supposed to do next. The, and and I find that kind of... It's not unforgivable, and it's quite an intensive thing to try and overcome uh, from a game design development point of view, mm. um, especially in an open sort of... A, a game with an overworld, and sort of you, can, you can't tackle them in any order. That's why they're numbered. But, uh, you know, you, you, there is some freedom in which you approach them, and... Uh, yeah, it's it's funny. Um, I, I saying that though, I couldn't recommend them changing it because part of the the fun is, like I was saying, it's that exploration, that what's around the corner, and oh, I found a, a door. I don't know what's through it. I'll go through it and find out. And oh, there's a there's a secret room or secret items or whatever. You know, there's whole characters and sort of subplots almost that you could miss entirely if you just follow this sort of the main route through the game. So, um, I'd, I'd feel I'd rather they changed it rather than than sort of tweak it rather than change it if you know what I mean because um, that risks sort of spoiling the hmm. spoiling the game a little bit um, and I mean the, the other sort of thing is is it's quite something that you wouldn't have thought would be a problem but back in the day when they were making it uh, you've obviously got four you've got four directional movement in the original Zeldas in this you have eight so you can move on the di- di- diagonals and this you know it's a, that was a big deal back then um, and they hoped to have you able to shoot uh, arrows and fight with your sword in eight directions as well uh, but they couldn't do it uh, it's actually quite well they could do it but it it was fiddly and not as fun as uh, they'd hoped so they basically limited it to four directions um, but that's why they introduced the famous spin slash the one that you can charge up and, and let go uh, so that you can actually attack enemies no matter where they are in relation to you because they can all move in in eight directions as well um, and it's a, it's a funny thing I, I it just for some reason it just bugs me that I can't stab my sword in eight directions sometimes I just want to um, but having understood the whys and the result having this kick-ass move that maybe wouldn't have been in there if they hadn't had that trouble um, I'm, I'm alright I'll forgive them you know mm. <laughs> um, this question may be made a bit more redundant after what you've just said but like as a developer like what design choices would you change or tweak about the game oh man you're asking me to to pick apart the best my favourite game I don't know if I can um, <laughs> that's your role as a developer so. It's very true, very true. Um, I think, I think that these days, 
if you were to make a game like this, it would be daft not to allow at least eight directional control uh, in in terms of the combat. That is the one thing that I think because I'm used to not having to worry about it. Going back and worrying about it in that game is is an issue. Um, I understand all of the reasons that they didn't do it back then, but nowadays it just isn't a problem in the same way. Um, that said, um, having cardinal directions, so the eight you know specific directions you can attack in, there is a pre- that lends a precision to the way that you interact with the world, um, or four in Zelda three, um, that having full analog, you know, three hundred and sixty degrees of freedom to attack and and whatever um, actually would take away from it. It would feel a little looser and a little sort of less uh, less kick ass, frankly. Um, so so it's an interesting one. Um, I think that. I'm trying to think about sort of less tiny specific things. Uh, the the as we mentioned earlier, the the sort of lack of um, lack of ability to, to sort of check where you're at and what you're supposed to be doing next is something that they've constantly tried to fix. I mean, even in the the upcoming Majora's Mask on 3DS, they've they've uh, added a, a journal function um, to the to the bomber. I can't remember the name of it. There's the Bomber Gang or something, and, and essentially that game plays with time travel as well. So it's important to know what you've done, where you need to be, and when. Um, but something, something akin to that in in a game like this would uh, wouldn't have gone amiss. I think either a journal sort of checking who you've been or, or, or sorry, who you've spoken to or where you've been, um, or even the ability to just mark things on a map and make notes. You know. Um, Although you can do that with pen and paper in the real world, so <laughs> you know, um, yeah, I don't know. It's it's an interesting question. I guess if I was being really, 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 really picky, I think some of the enemies are in there purely to add variety rather than necessarily be interesting bad guys to fight. If you know what I mean. So every time you go to a new area or a new dungeon there are new bad guys and I get that that adds a sense of this world being huge and you constantly meeting new enemies and interesting things to overcome but there comes a point where perhaps you just think well actually that guy's just a bit fiddly to fight or um, you know this guy's annoying in a particular situation because of his AI routines or whatever weapons you've got and uh, perhaps they could have done a little bit more to uh you know, trim some of those out or combine some of the lesser enemies into into you know simpler more sort of fun bad guys to to overcome but but that's pretty much it moving on then uh to other zelda games um oh. how, how um we should probably touch upon uh like a link between worlds because that is more or less direct sequel to a link to the past yes how, how, how uh do you get on with that like is that's there- it's fantastic. Have, have, did you manage to play it? I have not. No, sadly, no. Uh-huh. But 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 then I I was distracted. The year came out with The Last of Us. So fair fair dues. Yeah, that is a good game too. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, the, that is a fantastic game. I think um, they did an incredibly good job of sort of. So I mean, I I recently completed Zelda Three for the first time. Believe it or not, like actually completed it a hundred percent. Um, a couple of years back so I mean up until that point I'd constantly played up to a point and it always seemed to be around it was either just before or just after the final boss fight you know I never really sort of went back and rinsed it for all it was worth Um, but but recently I I went back and so it was fairly fresh in my mind and and 
having this 3ds version where you know the worlds come to life in in sort of 3d and the you know it's just it's it's a little faster a little nippier some of the controls are just a little bit more um fine-tuned and uh the item progression was fixed so rather than you going to a i don't want to say fixed but it was different rather than going to a dungeon earning an item and then mastering it within that dungeon uh this one the dungeons you can access pretty much all of them from the start um but uh there's a guy with a shop who sells you the items and you can either rent them for your that your life as in you know until you are knocked unconscious um or you can just buy them if you've got enough uh, rupees which is the currency and um yeah that was a really interesting sort of twist uh, it doesn't really change the core satisfaction of the game you know getting an item and then figuring out all the cool ways you can interact with it um it just makes it feel a bit more more free a little less regimented in the way that it does that and as a sort of reimagining of the world because the, the the map was almost identical but they've sort of mixed up different characters and and you know changed changed some of the uh the uh the interactions that you have and the dungeons are all pretty much like i think they're all 100 percent new um because some of the items are, are new as well and it was just it was just a, a brilliant way to sort of revisit something you know so, so often you'll have a favorite game and you'll go back and play it and you think oh for whatever reason, this isn't what I remember it to be. Um, for me, Zelda three Euro back, and it's and it's absolutely wonderful still. But this is now I've got two to pick from. <laughs> essentially, this is like a like the Zelda three that was released in an alternate dimension in nineteen ninety two, um, and it's somehow come through to us. So we get two goes at it. Um, but yeah, it, it's an interesting one because they did make a lot of concessions to. I think, as I mentioned with the item structure, uh, that is something that. People have been critical about um, since Zelda 3 with Nintendo following that that template and they've shown that whilst they haven't changed it, a, a fairly simple sort of tweak uh, makes it feel incredibly fresh um, and I, I would not be surprised at all if they used that in the new uh, the Wii U Zelda that they're working on because it was incredibly successful. So what about um, the upcoming Majora's Mask? Oh, well, not so much upcoming, but like, uh, of course it came out 15 years ago in Europe, mm. yeah, 64, now coming out in a few weeks' time as of recording this, or by the time this comes out, it'll be about a month after it came out. So, oh, fantastic. Um, it'll, yeah, so we talked about the kind of creepy nature of Majora's Mask, but um, mm. h- how did you find it? Um, terrifying. <laughs> um, there are there are there are occasional bits in it that are supposed to be scary, you know, like the ghosts sort of land and things like that. There's a, the the desert uh, area, I think, in particular, is is all about death and and stuff. Um, and uh, actually, again, Majora's Mask, funny story. I nearly got run over uh, when I bought it um, <laughs> because I was so excited. I I walked straight out into the road looking at it rather than looking at the road. Um, anyway, uh, I never finished it. I've got a history of doing this uh, back when it came out. Um, it was during my time at university, again, in first year, funnily enough. And I, I played it and played it, and I just didn't get on particularly well with the uh, with the the time travel technique. Um, and then recently, it, you know, it was out on the, the Wii... Uh, was it Wii or Wii U uh, eShop? I say recently, I mean like two years ago. And so I made the most of it. I was like, do you know what? That's on my list. I'm going to do it. And... God, blimey, that game. Yeah, there's there's scary bits, but just generally the whole tone of it is so... Oh, I don't know. It's like a lucid dream, but like bits of it are like a nightmare, you know? Um, just the laughing of the, the skull kid, you know, he curses you, takes you through to a strange world. Like, the whole idea of a Zelda game not set in Hyrule 
is weird enough you know like as i was saying it's it's an archetype it's kind of become like a fable or a legend that you constantly replay and different things happen in each game but they took you out of that familiarity so from the word go you're like um what is going to happen i have no idea and then you you land and you're turned into this thing this little deku scrub thing and you're like well that's not link i mean that was more of a shock than when you play as raiden in metal gear solid 2 (laughs) um it was just it's terrifying um and you know you've got no moves like you kind of float about and stuff and this guy's run off and he's stolen your horse you know like what, what on earth um i can't imagine anyone back in the day had, had who who was playing majora's mask hadn't played ocarina of time and i mean a lot of that game you get really fond of epona um your your horse i mean she's she's a great sort of character and tool in the in the game but um yeah, just uh, this, they do everything to, to pull the rug out from under your feet. And then you arrive in this town and you're like, well, obviously I'm going to save this world. But you're like, hang on, there's literally a moon with a giant evil face three days from smashing this world into, well, out of existence. You're like, how am I supposed to do that? You know, <laughs> even, like- even, if, even if I power up, I'm not going to be able to duel it, am I? You know, like every other Zelda game, you get to the end and it's a, a monster that you can fight. How do you fight a moon? You know, so... <laughs> Just ah, oh, it's absolute like basically genius, dark, twisted, evil genius. Oh, I can only imagine. Are you are you going to pick it up for FDS? Oh, do you know if I hadn't just finished, sort of just finished it, then I absolutely would. Um, I'm sort of in a position where making games takes up so much of my time. You know, I I've got this massive backlog, and I'm I'm being very very strict with myself. Um, to the point where literally about two months ago I started playing and finished playing Dishonored. Um, you know, I'm I'm quite behind. Um, so to to replay something that I've finished sort of relatively recently, I probably won't. But um, I'm very envious of anyone who is coming fresh to it or who it's been a good few years because it looks like they have made a lot of really smart little tweaks, you know, to the uh, to the systems to make it make it even better. Um, yeah, and some of the stuff that you'll see in that game in with the 3D ratcheted up is going to be be quite something. So what about the upcoming Wii U Zelda that we'll probably know more about coming through? Yeah, um, I can't wait. That that's It's always the series that I just... Like that and Mario are just like, well, I know I'm buying it. You know, if it's a new one, I'm buying it. Um, that's that's the rule. Uh, but the, from what I've seen, it looks incredible, um, gorgeous. I love the sort of... St- slight anime sort of styling to the the graphics sort it's, of like a gra- grown up wind waker isn't it no, almost it's it's actually more resembling skyward sword than it does wind waker doesn't it i suppose it does actually i forget that skyward sword does actually have that lovely uh, almost watercolor um filter applied to the to the backgrounds and the the way it renders things in the distance but then yeah the up close stuff's got like slight tune rendering isn't it um yeah that's a very good point but yeah it just looks it looks really great looks dynamic um, very big, which is always good. Um, and the the way that they're talking about, you know, the overworld being essentially one place, um, I think that people are misconstruing it, actually. Nintendo are very careful about what they say. And I've heard some people say, well, Zelda's always had an open world hub. And it's like, well, they haven't said hub. They've said it's an open world. So um, rather than going into a dungeon and it be discreet from you know, like essentially a level that you load from the overworld. I think they're all actually going to be intertwined in and exist in the the world in a way that's actually slightly more meaningful. So that could be could be very exciting. Um, 
And uh, yeah, I can't wait, frankly. It's basically the Legend of Zelda Skyrim. Yeah, which, like, who wouldn't want to play that, basically? So, if I put it to you, um, what are your top three Zelda games? So, obviously, Zelda 3 is at the top. Of course. Um, I think I would have to put Skyward Sword at number two. Oh, really? Why? I, yeah, massive fan of that game. Um, I just think that. Every, everything that they did that with the with the motion controls and the the cool gadgets and stuff using you know using what is sensible to about the 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 Wii controls was was very very well done. Um, I think as a story, it was one of the more interesting ones that they've done. Um, you know, it's sort of spoiler alert, but it's sort of a prequel in terms of telling the story of uh, kind of the origin of the of the the Master Sword, um, depending on how you read it. Um, and and the the bad guy was very very cool. Um, and yeah, it's it's certainly you know every time they sort of up the quality in terms of sort of uh, you know production values, and it's I mean that that continued on uh, with with that game. It's absolutely fantastic. Um, I think number three, oh boy. So I've never played the Game Boy one, and everyone tells me that that's amazing. Um, I, by which I mean uh, Link's Awakening, the original Game Boy one. Um, but I'd have to go with either Ocarina of Time for number three um, or Zelda Four Swords Adventures, but for wildly different reasons. Okay. Um, yeah. Um, go into why then. Okay. Uh, so Ocarina of Time is, you know, it's, it's again, they, they, this generation will leap to 3D, incredible realisation of what everyone thought was the pinnacle of sort of 3D adventuring at the time, uh, sorry, 2D adventuring with Zelda 3. Um you know, mature-ish storyline, um, some really dark moments in it, some wonderful characters, incredible gameplay, perfect camera system, like everything about it pretty much was was very, 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 very good. And when I got it, it was a very, it was a Christmas game. Zelda always seems to be that for me. Um, and, uh, you know, that's just like a happy time of the year, isn't it? Uh, and uh, yeah, so it holds a lot of memories for me, which are really nice. And it was first first sort of, world that I had thoroughly explored in 3D. You know, uh, Mario 64 was incredible for just showing a 3D world and going, oh my god, I can run around in it, it's a toy box. But this was an adventure in a world, you know, you could do so much more. But then, Four Swords is just such a brilliant cooperative game, you know. Um, running in around with four, well, three of your friends, all as Link, boomerangs going off, you've got fire that spreads around, you've got you know, hordes of bad guys. It's kind of like, um, it's almost like a Dynasty Warriors Zelda, which is funny because obviously they just recently did the uh, actual Dynasty Warriors with Zelda. Uh, <laughs> and, um, but yeah, it was, it was just like a manic sort of arcade action version of Zelda. And I, I always do, I, do, I love arcade action games. Uh, Zelda's probably as close as I get to playing and really liking RPGs uh, along the lines that, that most people think of them. Secret of Mana and Chrono Trigger are sort of outliers there. But, um, yeah, um, for two very different reasons. Just those those two games are absolutely fantastic. I think Four Swords could have been anything, to be honest. So maybe it's a bit silly saying that it's a favourite Zelda game because you could swap anyone in. You know, it could have been an original IP. It could have been almost any game. It, the, the gameplay is very unrelated to Zelda, really, um, except in fairly superficial ways. Honourable mentions. Head up. Head it. Right. Well. Okay. Top of the list. I've got a list literally in front of me. Um, yes, like for what it's worth, um, Andrew sent me a, li- a ton of games when I first pitched them to come on, like, and it was a ton. And I had to force them to make a Sophie's Choice oh, of sorts so between, between a link to the past and 
what was the GoldenEye? Yeah. It was GoldenEye was the front runner, yeah. And I mean, even that was tied with like about eight other games. Oh, man. <laughs> so, all right, I'll start with GoldenEye because you mentioned it. Um, that game, yeah, there, I mean, there is sort of um, a, a sort of a background and story to this, that, to, to why it sort of stuck with me for so long. But GoldenEye, when it came out, that was the game that I got my N64 for. Um, and I mean, I loved... I loved the idea of Bond. I'd loved all of his old movies. Um, I loved Rare's work um, up to that point. I hadn't played GoldenEye at that point, and I had um, not seen GoldenEye the movie, uh, but I liked the idea of seeing it. Like um, I just hadn't for whatever reason. And um, it got these amazing reviews, and I wanted an N64. So saved up, got one, and it just... <laughs> staggering. Absolutely incredible game. Um, the everything about it from like it's very very economic with its storytelling um which is why it works for uh, or why it's labeled as a really great movie adaptation because it doesn't really bother with the movie that much um, um it's not telling a story it's actually just a series of really cool stuff to do um as bond um the the gunplay was incredibly satisfying because of the the main, mainly because of a the sound effects and b the um, the the way that bad guys reacted to you, um, which may or may not be related to the fact that originally it was an on rails shooter, like a light gun game, um, mm. and obviously that's the only thing you're doing is pointing at things and shooting them. So they have to react in interesting ways, and they had this whole system, obviously, where you shoot different bits of the body, they react differently. If you shoot them in the knee, then the shoulder, they'll go from grabbing the knee to the shoulder or at, at any point. You know, it's it's just incredibly satisfying. The fact that you could, I mean, I, I think am I right in saying it was Quake One? was sort of around the same time um, Quake 1 was 96 like we had so I, it would I, have been yeah, I uh, think it would have been yeah yeah because like I had Tom Bramwell on for the end of last season talking about Quake and Quake was 96 yeah so yes. Go- GoldenEye was 97 wasn't it I think it was over here at least yeah um, so I mean like comparatively Quake uh, brilliant game not, not saying it's not wouldn't want to argue with Tom uh, but um, <laughs> in terms of you know, it it does one thing very well: fast action. You know, fantastic. Oh. Um, with Goldeneye, you can you can you get stuck on the first level. You you find a gate across your your path, and you're like, I don't I don't understand. What am I what am I supposed to do? And I think this is for people who were of an age at that time and of a games playing sort of level of experience. It was kind of a watershed moment. You can shoot the lock off the gate. It's not just a graphic, and it, it sounds like the most incidental thing. Um, and it shouldn't have uh, any kind of impact or there shouldn't be a memory associated with it. But so few games actually had a level of fidelity that you, you're shown a door and you can go through it. It's not just something on a wall that you can't, you know. Um, it, you're shown a window, it will break when you smash it. You know, these these levels were, as far as, you know, for the time, were, were basically as close to real as they could be. Um, and the fact that, I mean, that, that was very simple you know you can't get past here unless you do this you know unless you figure out you have to shoot the the lock off and it's in the movie he does it in the movie you know so you know you should know um although i didn't because i hadn't seen it um (laughs) but it's it's sort of indicative of the level of of sort of interweaving um uh gameplay objectives and like level design and systems that all of the levels allowed you so you play through it on on the easiest setting and you just have to get to the end of the level and that's it you go on secret agent and there's like a couple of side objectives that you're like oh this makes me go to different areas of the level that i didn't even know existed or a door's actually locked and that would 
you know a security door that was open on easy isn't and you have to find the guy and get his card and then on perfect agent it just gets it's even more crazy and it's just it was one of the first games to really allow that sort of it's not really expression of the player's sort of intent through the gameplay, but it was more than a lot of games had. You know, it wasn't up with Deus Ex. That was a good few years later, but but the idea that you could approach the game in multiple different ways and you you were allowed to think of the levels as real spaces, and that you would you would think, well, there must be a way around there. Like this can't be the only way, you know. And it wasn't, you know, if you thought that. Um, uh, it was absolutely fantastic, um, incredibly hard, but absolutely fantastic. And uh, and I I got it at a time when uh, at school I was not having a good time, shall we say? Uh, uh, I don't know if you know about Shahid's uh, Ahmed's um, final Beyond the Final Boss website. I, I do know of it. Yeah, so I, I did I did a piece on there which kind of is related to this. I was I was bullied uh, quite nastily at school for a, a year or so, and uh, this came at a point where that was going on. I was not having a very nice time, but I was able to essentially let's let's make light of it. Uh, essentially, by kicking everyone's butt in multiplayer. Um, actually sort of restore some semblance of uh, pride in myself and, and, and my abilities as a human being. So that was kind of cool. Um, I mean, it, you know, it's more complex than that, but, you know, we haven't got forever. Um, and uh, it's actually, it's, speaking of Game City earlier, I was, I was very lucky. Uh, I was on a, on a panel with uh, Martin Hollis, who was the lead designer on GoldenEye, and uh, I think Perfect Dark as well after it. And uh, I was able to tell him that in a, in a much shorter version, and, and that meant a lot that I was able to sort of you know, I love the game. I would have anyway, but it it actually genuinely helped me through a time that I I really needed something. And in a way, you know, GoldenEye is not a kind of game that has much emotional resonance. You wouldn't think it would be capable of that, but it meant a lot to me. And uh, and it, and it's it it still reminds me of how powerful games can be. You know, um, they are absolutely wonderful things. So that was why that was nearly the the game I was talking about. <laughs> 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 Donkey Kong Country, the first game I got on my SNES, it marked the time that I was sort of growing up into video games from the Commodore 64. As you can imagine, that was a bit of a leap into the, the Donkey Kong Country series on the SNES. Looked astounding, sounded amazing. I still love the way it plays. Its levels are built a bit more like adventure game, an adventure game than a, than a pure platformer like, like Mario or something like that. And as, as I said previously with Zelda, you know, I love, I love sort of adventuring and, and, and exploring um, as much as I do anything else. Um, related to that, Half-Life 1, as I mentioned, uh, means a lot to me in my, my career particularly. Um, but it was the first game that really... Sort of, it, that was the next step from GoldenEye for me. You know, uh, That was like, wow, this is a real world and it's an amazing story that I've never heard before and I'm living through it. And you know, all these wonderful things uh, that, that, that you know, everyone knows why Half-Life 1 is great. Um, <laughs> Super Mario World it is just the pinnacle of the genre. Um, Secret of Mana is probably my favourite Japanese RPG. Uh, again, I, a game that I bought not knowing much about it when I had my snares. I'd saved up for... This was I, the strangest thing. I, I'd seen coverage of it, and I was sort of umming and ahhing, and then I forgot about it. And then I went to a shop. It was called Special Reserve. You had to be a member, and you got massive discounts um, uh, with my dad. And I was sort of wondering, like, I've ma- I've saved up money for a SNES game, but I don't know what I'm going to get. But I've gone to the shop anyway. Like, that's a weird, a weird thing. I think I don't know how many people do that. You know, um, you tend to know what you want to buy when you buy it. Um, 
and Secret Mana was on the shelf and I it, purely on the box art I asked one of the staff what what is that is it any good and they said I can't tell you but yes like I'm not allowed my job doesn't allow me to recommend games but yes you should get that so I did and then from the moment the uh, the whale song sort of uh musical intro uh, hits it just had me under a spell it's absolutely incredible game uh, it's a, it's an action rpg for people who 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 want to know and want, should go and play it it's absolutely magical uh what else mario 64 i've covered as well you know uh just just a watershed moment and um and then three three non-nintendo ones how about that mm. um sega rally championship um and i mean specifically rally um, <laughs> i used to i used to play that game the arcade version like so oh. bad like a lot. It's, it's so good. That game, like, I, th- I think it's the sound effects. I've thought about it a lot, and I think it's the sound effects. I mean, obviously the course design's great, but the the sort of the amount of tactile response you got before rumble packs, you know, before any of that stuff. Yeah. The graphics are pretty ropey, um, but you seem to just understand how your tires were interacting with the courses in that game, and it was it was the first course. Um, was it desert? It was desert. No, um, I was. Um, it that was, was it for me. I didn't play anything else. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I know there was forest and mountain. Ah, for, I, I always thought forest was the first one, the first stage. Oh, maybe it is forest. That's it is. It I is. Can't. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So it's yeah stage one, whatever yeah. it's called. It's got that massive, massive like drifting corner right at the end, and you've got oh, yeah. got. Oh, it's just incredible. That game. I again passed the pad. Me and my friend uh, used to a different friend this time. Used to. Uh, Literally spend all day uh, just trying to beat each other's time trials on that with the uh, with the Toyota Corolla. Um, just just fantastic game. Um, Res another that was Tetsuya Mitsuguchi Sega Rally. So yeah. is Res um, that game. Just I've I've never really been into any kind of drugs or anything, um, but that game got me as close as I need to be. I think it's probably the best high you could ever have. Anyway, um, something about it just i don't know I, I, I again i didn't know much about it and, and i had a bit of a history of trying to get it to work on my dreamcast i bought five copies from game and none of them worked on my dreamcast it doesn't make any sense so i had to get it on ps2 like a year later um and it's just it's just absolutely incredible you you, you it's an on-rail shooter where you go through sort of a a corrupted um computer system sort of virtual reality in the worst kind of 90s way but in a very cool japanese game development uh, presentation and the whole the whole world the audio and the visuals all all pulse in time to the to the music and it's um based on the works of Str- uh, kandinsky i believe um who who had uh, synesthesia he could visualize uh, sounds as vis- as as pictures uh, and it's like a it's a kind of a medical condition but it's one that actually sounds kind of cool uh, judging by Res, but anyway, uh, and then Resident Evil Four, which is just about, I think in the last ten years, it's probably the game that I have played the most times, um, from start to finish. So GameCube got it on import, absolutely amazing. Played it a few times through on that, and then it came out on the Wii. And I don't know if have you ever played the Wii version? I've not played the Wii version. I've played the PS2 version though. Okay, yeah. Uh see. <laughs> The Wii one, for some reason, that that sort of the tank movement of the character Leon, and the 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 pointer using that as aiming, it's the perfect control system for that game. 
Um, it's such a shame that I think you know it's kind of people who were already over it by the time it came to the Wii. But me and my two flatmates up in Dundee, we we all bought it separately, even though like we could have just bought it once and just all sat there playing it over and over and over in our different rooms, shouting out stuff um, and you know competing and, and all kinds of silly stuff. But that that game is is uh, Mikami's Shinji Mikami's best, and uh, I just think as an action game has has rarely been. I don't think it's. I don't think it's been equaled. Uh, frankly, um, it's it's like its individual mechanics have been aped and have been done as well. But it's something about the pacing and the game as a whole, uh, the stylistic touches, like the the shopkeeper and his weird, uh, you know, what is it? Um, sort of, he's sort of a Cockney, isn't he? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, what are you buying? Yeah. Like, <laughs> I thought I was in sort of some weird bit of Spain where demons have taken over but apparently not um, and he, he was a bit of a demon he had like claws and glowy eyes and I, I don't know there's just so much about that game like again I could have I could have chosen that one perhaps but uh, that game's just that, that sort of a lot of the games on this list you know they have like an emotional sort of tangent to them or they're, they're a point like with Mario 64 where it was just like I did not know this was possible in games oh my god um, but Resi 4, you know, I was used to all of that. Resi 4 is just an absolutely brilliant action game on every level. And so it is something that it's probably the, the, the more sort of dry inclusion, if you like. But it's, it's one that just, yeah, I, could, I couldn't talk about my favourite games without mentioning that game. It's just absolutely brilliant. If I put you on the spot and said, what are your top three games ever? <laughs> Obviously, I'd like the past to be top, but... Obviously, Super Link's past. I think Super Mario World probably has to be in there. Like, it's just, it's just so good. Um, and again, that's that's a Mario game that was more of uh, like the the levels are obviously platforming challenges, but it's got an overworld and there are secrets and like items that you can use and power ups and stuff. And it's 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 sort of an adventure, isn't it? Um, you know, there's there's an element again. So I'm, it's funny having having made this list. I'm like, huh. You know, I can I can see like a, a running theme along these, um, and I think GoldenEye. I think it kind of has to be. I've realised I've left Metroid either Super or Prime off of this list, um, but <laughs> I can't le- go you, on forever. You've left off Metal Gear Solid as well. That it. too. See, Metal Gear Solid is again that's something I I love Twin Snakes. I don't know many people who do, but I love Twin Snakes. But Metal Gear Solid, genuinely, that was that was a. a, a not in terms of the like I enjoyed playing it but it was the first game where I gave a crap about any of the characters mm. like uh, genuinely um, that, that is an important game for me um, yeah I d- oh, there's just too many I think if yeah if you had to press me it would have to be mm. Link to the Past uh, Super Mario World and and GoldenEye um, but ask me in six months and one or two of those could easily be swapped in or out you know Evil dictators, aliens, and mindless criminals threaten to turn the world upside down. You wouldn't want it any other way. Milk Milk Studios and Mastertronic presents Tango Fiesta. The Mac and Cheese. Hong Kong 83. The Steel Auger. Hong Kong 84. The Matrix 80. The Viper Combat Rifle. The Woodstock 69. The Cobra Cleaner. 
splash your cash in the gun shop. <laughs> I'd buy that for a dollar. Tango Fiesta. For those mm-hmm. who don't know what Tango Fiesta Tango Fiesta is, give us the elevator pitch of what is Tango Fiesta. All right, it's a it's a top-down four-player cooperative action game. It's arcadey. It's fun. It's it's you versus the world. Um, and we like to think that it's it's also kind of it's it's the true story behind every single over-the-top '80s action movie you've ever loved. So we 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 kind of wrote the uh, wrote the game believing that uh Die Hard, Predator, Rambo, um Rambo, uh, Commando, um but, uh, uh what's it uh, uh, RoboCop, um Terminator, Terminator, all of these films that as we know them are actually based on true stories and not not true stories but one true story. They all actually happen to this one unfortunate amazing hero called John Strong. And he's the main character of our of our game, Tango Fiesta. And uh, we basically follow his adventures. And uh, you know, he travels through time, and he fights aliens and uh, ghosts, and uh, uh, gets double crossed, and and all kinds of exciting things. Blows an awful lot of bad guys up. And then at the end, when he returns to his own time, obviously no one believes him because that's crazy. Like that doesn't make any sense. That can't happen. Um, but of course, Hollywood smelling money. They diddled him out of all his uh, stories, and he never got any credit. So this is his chance for the truth to be told. Mm. <laughs> um, you mentioned a game from your childhood that more or less uh, resembles those kind of alien movies, Cabal. Like, was mm. that a big inspiration as well? It's funny. It's it isn't specifically not in terms of the gameplay, but looking at looking back to what it was trying to do. Um, although. I mean, the, with Cabal, I think they were literally just. I wish we had the Rambo license. You know, they're like they literally made Rambo, um, but without calling it Rambo. We we've gone for more of a. Hey, all that stuff is exists. It's wonderful. It's its own thing. But this is like our love letter to it. You know, um, so in that in that sort of same way, we're we're kind of just paying homage to something, some things that we think are absolutely amazing. Um, and that that happens to be you know the the action movies of the eighties. Arnie and Bruce Willis and Sly, the whole lot of them. Um, they're just fantastic. Hmm. Like, what, what other influences was there besides the typical 80s action movie? So, in terms of sort of gameplay, um, we've, we've gone for a very, currently very trendy sort of, uh, uh, what's the word? Um, automatic, uh, procedurally generated uh, uh... Like, um, uh, levels um, and that's it's not necessarily because we want it to be the new Binding of Isaac and people are like doing all these crazy runs and customising their characters and all this kind of stuff we just want it to be new and interesting every time you know um, and, and we kind of use the excuse that he's telling his story from memory and his, his memory's not all what it what it used to be um, so the sort of the, the levels every time you play World 1-1 it's still got the same bad guys um, and the same sort of level structure it's just laid out differently and you know like a different shape and it might mix up the objectives a little bit and things like that so it's just it's just a way for it to have longer legs you know i think if we just made a series of levels by hand um it wouldn't wouldn't be as sort of fun over the long term especially it's a it's a co-op game you know primarily uh, that's how we've designed it um four swords adventures funnily enough is is a sort of a touchstone in that sort of madcap um, kind of four players having a lot of fun together, um, running around top down, tons of bad guys, lots of things going on, kind of a way. Uh, Gauntlet was a bit of a touchstone as well. We sort of there was a time when we sort of thought it basically it's Gauntlet with guns, 
Um, so again, you're just sort of running around levels that are quite not not short. I don't want to undersell it, but you know they're they're self-contained and they're they're uh, full of bad guys, and you just have to kind of spray and pray a lot because you know that's what they that's what they did in the '80s movies. You know, no one ever aimed a gun in the '80s. Like you know, bad guys aimed guns in the '80s. That's why they lost. Um, and uh, I mean, we we go a bit further than that as well. We we sort of reference '80s culture, not not just the movies. You know, the the music, the people, the fashion. Um, all of that kind of stuff um, and we've had a lot of fun doing it um, I've basically spent the last year with f- three of my mates living in the 80s uh, and making a game uh, I guess you could say that basically it's an arcade game from back then but made made to today's standards you know it's it's simple and over the top but it's it's fast and fun and exciting and you know hopefully has a lot more content than uh than some of those arcade games did. Hmm. Um, so um, it's been on Steam Early Access for a while, hasn't it? It has, yeah. It was since um, April, actually, last year. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, how have you found that experience on, on Steam? been really interesting. Um, I'll start with the, the, the downside. Uh, almost it can be perfectly summarized by the fact that the day that we launched, um, and I wish I was joking, but literally the day that we launched on the Early Access... Valve sent an email round to the internet saying, hey, this early access thing that we've been pushing, you know, it's all good, it's great, it's wonderful, but you might want to be careful because a lot of the games that are coming out on it are pretty ropey. (laughs) That wasn't, you know, word for word, but it was basically uh, uh, what they said. And we were like, oh, great. So we're announcing uh, early access the day that they're selling people to be careful of early access. So that was was interesting. it's impossible to tell if that had an effect or not, but uh, yeah, it's it's been a little slower than I would have hoped. Um, we've learned an awful lot. The game is so much better for being on early access. Uh, we've got like a very small but very um, excitable bunch of fans on, uh, lurking on the forums. They they consume every update and send us videos and screenshots of what's wrong. And even though that might sound a bit like a uh, bit of a pain, it's actually perfect. That's what we want to happen. Um, and uh, we are not far from like version one uh, from being finished. But as with most things in life, we don't know how long it's going to take. So we're just gonna we're just gonna keep making it better until it's good enough to 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 call complete. Uh, and and uh, yeah, it's exciting. I mean, I think we're one of the few indie games to actually have functional, like fully functional online multiplayer. You know, a lot of games have couch co-op as they call it these days um but we we have we've been out of the gate with with online uh we think it's really important um the game's great in single player but it's always better with friends uh and uh yeah we thought well it'd be no matter what the cost is to development or whatever you know you just we we felt that you're kind of under you're not doing it justice you know um if you don't let people play online as well as off so sometime this year on pc final finished version yep absolutely and uh, mac and linux should everything go according to plan mm. and uh consoles i mean like you and Shahid are very close so ps4 <laughs> vita um yeah, hopefully. I mean, who knows? We've we've we have without sort of naming names, we've spoken to the platform holders, plural, and um, you know we've made sure that you know they're happy with it coming, and they are. So um, we just need to finish the game, and then at that point we will, um, you know, we'll essentially what happens is you have to figure out how much it's going to cost or how long it's going to take, which is often the same thing. Um, so it's best done when we're finished. 
because then we'll know exactly how much there is to to port over but we've made it in unity it shouldn't be too much of a struggle we've got like really good connections with the with the industry in the uk and uh, yeah i i'm very much looking forward to playing it on my uh, ps4 or my xbox one or whatever uh in the uh, hopefully this year who knows that would be great wouldn't it Let off on Steam! So on Twitter, I am at Spilt Milk Studio. Uh, that, that doesn't have an S on the end because there isn't enough room, uh, sadly. And uh, tangofiesta.co.uk, uh, Facebook slash Spilt Milk Studios with an S because there is room. And uh, yeah, check us out. Early access got the trailers up there as well. Um, I think we're ten bucks, whatever that is, eleven ninety nine um, on early access. And I do believe if we're if this doesn't jinx it, we're going to be updating uh, the the week that we're recording this. Um, but by the time this is out, the game might be finished. Holy crap! Ooh. Yeah, you never know. You oh. never know. And even if it isn't, go and buy it and play it with us because it's great. On that bombshell. <laughs> for listening to my favourite game next week Rhea Jenkins on Bayonetta until next week bye bye